Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to episode two of Still Watching Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm Vanity Fair senior writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair chief critic Richard Lawson. If you are just joining us for the first time on Still Watching, what we like to do on the show is that Richard and I like to pick a show that we're watching kind of closely, break it down week by week. Sometimes we have folks who work on the show who come on the show on this podcast and talk to us about it. Uh, sometimes we don't. This week we don't. So it's just going to be us, uh, our sweet opinions and thoughts and theories. And if you stick around for the back half of the show, that is when our colleague Anthony Brezkin will show up to get a little, a little dive a little deeper into some comic lore, get a little nerdier about some some theories and stuff like that. So so we will be doing that in the back half of the show. We also love to get your input. You can always email us, stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. We're going to get to a couple of those. But first, really quickly, I want to let you know that we've got this really cool thing coming up uh, that Vanity Fair is doing uh, April 13th to the 15th. It's called Cocktail Hour. And uh, Richard, I'm about to blow your hair back with some of the guests are you ready yeah i'm ready okay we've got serena williams gal gadot michael b jordan glenn close laura dern john han amanda seyfried paris hilton annie sandberg lonely island shaka king jessica alba and more to be announced also the girl band that i just recently found out i was uh mispronouncing it's haim right not haim as like a lot of people said anyway sure 
these are these are some of the guests. This is going to be like this cool festival we're doing. We're doing in conversations. There's going to be like fun games that they're playing, music, all sorts of stuff. And a portion of the proceeds will go to the Motion Picture and Television Fund uh, to help support COVID-19 relief efforts. The tickets are available right now at vf.com slash live. Uh, so you can go pick us some tickets check out the events, see what's going on. Um, I think it's going to be something really cool that we're doing. Uh, in the end of this pandemic here, the last gasp of our stay at home order. What do you, what do you like? What are you most excited for, for this cocktail hour, Richard? Well, you mentioned Shaka King who, you know, directed Judas and the black Messiah. I believe that he's in conversation with Z-Way, the, the comedian, um, an actor and writer who, um, she had an Instagram, has an Instagram live show that she's been doing kind of, I think since the pandemic started, um, where she asks people some tough questions. Uh, I think that'll be really interesting. Um, but yeah, I think there's such a breadth, the Paris Hilton conversation. I believe she's talking with our own Emily Jane Fox, who is a really mm-hmm. interesting chronicler of, uh, you know, that sort of contingent of, American wealth and society, a critical cover of it. She's not, <laughs> Emily uh, has her own takes on things. So anyway, there's a night's breadth of, uh, of subject matter and um, yeah, it should be fun. And our very own of this podcast, Anthony Braskin will be talking to Wonder Woman herself, Gal Gadot. So go to vf.com slash live. Pick up your tickets. Uh, join us for this very fun thing that we're doing. Um, all right. So Richard Lawson, mm-hmm. do you have any emails that you want to dive into this week? I, in fact, have three emails. <gasps> three. Hit that me. I have selected from the button bag like Tim Gunn. Um, <laughs> so a couple of them weighed into stuff that maybe you and Anthony are better suited to talk about, but they piqued my interest as, you know, I, I this set of the comic book world I don't know anything about. Like, I know a little bit about X-Men and some Avenger stuff we've seen on screen, but like, a, but like Captain America lore is... I never really followed that character. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. So the first email is from, this is less comic book nerdy, uh, from Paul. And he writes and says, thank you for your continued coverage of the Marvel TV productions. Um, and he said, he has a couple questions that listeners may have asked, but here we go. First is, do we have a rough estimate for when this TV show is set? I'm assuming post WandaVision, but how far after? Do you think we may have Sam and Bucky comment at all regarding what ha- regarding what happened in Westview? So let's just mm-hmm. answer these one by one. Um, yeah, I don't know. Do you know the I answer do. to that? Okay. Yes, it's been six months since the blip. We found out in episode one. So mm-hmm. for context of of the post Endgame stuff we've seen, um, Spider Man Far From Home takes place eight months. Uh, that's, you know, Spider-Man's European vacation took place eight months. So two months after the events of the show, uh, after the blip. And then WandaVision took on- place only a couple weeks after the blip. So well in advance of what we're seeing here, it would be interesting to see them comment on it. Um, but given what we know about how WandaVision was supposed to premiere bef- after this, uh, I-, I don't know. I don't know, uh, you know, in terms of reshoots and stuff, if, if we'll see them comment on it. But it it does seem weird. This is one thing that the Marvel Universe sometimes has issues with, which is like siloing off various heroes' adventures from each other. Um, like, I, I'm pretty sure that's why Captain Marvel, uh, played by Brie Larson, just like goes into space after the 90s. So that, so that they don't have to explain why she wasn't like at the Battle of New York and other things. Uh, so this is, this is, this is part of the complication when you populate your planet with superheroes. Why don't they all show up for all the, 
big battles, you know? So. Well, in Captain Marvel's case, it was proving that, you know, we have a very Earth-centric view of things, Joanna. There were other problems to attend to in it's the true. universe. And the Battle other of New York planets. just didn't, didn't rate, you know? <laughs> just like other they, planets they than yours. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Um, Paul continues. Um, are we as viewers to believe that Sam Wilson was not compensated for his efforts as an Avenger? Or is he just, quote, cash poor after being blipped the last five years? So that's a reference, obviously, to the... Um, scenes in the first episode where he and his sister are struggling to save their family fishing business. They go to the bank. They are turned down quite, you know, uh, officiously but, uh, for, for a loan. Um, and yeah, there were a, there was another email that suggested, well, wouldn't Tony Stark have set up like a Heroes Fund or something? Uh, and yeah, that seems like something Tony Stark would have done in his more generous later years. Um, so I don't know. Do, I mean, what is the conventional thinking on the finances of... of of Sam or the Avengers in general. Yeah, I think this actually wound up being a huge talking point of the episode that we didn't really um, address. Though you, Richard, after we stopped recording last week, were like, why would Sam need a bank loan? <laughs> um, so we should have we should have talked about this last week. Um, I think, it, you know, even if Tony hadn't set it up, honestly, if Sam had had only to send Pepper Paws one email, and I'm pretty sure he would have been set up and fine. Um, but, you know, maybe he has his reasons that he doesn't want to. But the other, you know, the other question is, this work he's doing for the military, both for and sort of off the books of the military, surely he's getting paid and well for that, right? Like, the the episode one opens with him doing this, like, daring rescue. Where Where is his major compensation for that? So I don't have a great answer for this. I honestly think they wanted to just do this scenario, which is a which was like a really, um, you know, a really pointed, good, well done scene. But I, I think the logic around it is falling apart for some people. So I don't have a good a good answer for that. Yeah, I mean, I I think that in as uh, as much as the show thus far has been looking at the function of race in America, particularly. Um, for someone who has, you know, given so much of himself to a country that then turns around and, you know, disregards or worse, uh, you yeah. know, things that he needs. Um, maybe he, Sam, uh, Sam was being paid less uh, than his white counterparts, which is I certainly a reality it. for people in this country yeah. and elsewhere. Um, so, yeah, maybe that will come to bear later. I don't know. Um, I also think that, like, uh, in addition to that, not not separate of but like i could see a sort of government or whatever that was so caught up in like all of these pressing things that no one ever got around to you know like it just sort of happened um which would be another thing like kind of exploiting free labor um but yeah i do think that had the email to pepper Potts gone out uh and and tony stark definitely would have been like just subject line only kind of guy you know like an old, <laughs> an old boss i had like nothing in the body text just terse money for them you know uh yeah and just like a dash ts or whatever um all right there's a third component to paul's email uh the question oh it's yeah it's a good question three are bucky and sam going to kiss in the series i ask mainly in jest but would love for marvel to have a gay power couple and i ship it um obviously i've been banging this drum for a while um i wrote a snippet of a fake screenplay for this show that when i tweeted out and got i don't know mini viral i guess um (laughs) 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. Not that not these two. They're certainly no. playing with that a little bit. I thought there was an ep- a moment in this um, second episode that was a bit gay panicky, maybe for my liking, uh, when they're in that sort of joint therapy session. Yep. Um and had to like dare oh god touch knees or whatever and you're too close you know, you're a little close you're a little have close their and knees I was like v- all right yeah. vaguely in the vicinity of their crotches and you know and it's like well you guys wear these tight suits like what do you expect you know um <laughs> so no, your I, boots are so red and shiny the one thing I will say I'm not defending any gay panic ever obviously but the one thing I like to try to remind myself from time to time is that Bucky is like defrosted from the 1940s so um and and then like dropped in Wakanda for a while. So like, not to say that, that Wakanda isn't gay friendly. I have no idea, but just sort of like, he hasn't gotten any chance to hang out in modern America. Um, yet. So I'm not defending his reaction. I didn't, I didn't like that moment. I was like, this is unnecessary. Um, but I liked the, the like they're, they're literally in couples counseling and I did like that aspect of it. You know what I mean? Yes. Yeah. Um, but we'll see. Who knows? You know, Marvel, I guess, could throw a real curveball or curve shield. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, all right. Jonathan writes to us about Wyatt Russell. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, Wyatt Russell as Captain America looked like Timothy Oliphant in Boba Fett's armor. It just seemed wrong. I know Wyatt Russell from the AMC show Lodge 49. In that show, he plays an aimless surfer bro. I really hope he brings a comedy vibe to this character. Like White Vision, I hope there are fan nicknames for his character, like, I think, well, Fagin? And then, I don't know what that's a reference to. And then, Fapton America, which, if his <laughs> name was Fapton America, that would imply... That's something else entirely. Something different. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think that's a, you know, I, I think Wyatt Russell is an interesting choice for this role of a perhaps naive, perhaps sinister, perhaps both uh, sort of, you know, chiseled figure for this kind of thing because he has you know he's the son of goldie hahn and kurt russell i think he grew up in colorado with the other russell hudson kids like kind of (laughs) surfer bum Mm -hmm. or ski bum kind of guy um and he's played that kind of role in, in, in other you know film and tv so this is an interesting kind of shift for him mm-hmm. uh, but yeah maybe they're going to tease out more of that aspect of him as the series goes but i kind of don't see that happening the way they're framing the character so far what was that um, Linklater uh, college baseball boy movie? Everybody wants some. Yeah, he. That's my favorite Wyatt Russell stoner role. Is in that one? Um, yeah, I think a lot of people pointed out that like he has a really, they think he has a really punchable face, which is like quite a thing to say. I mean, I think that's m- mostly had to do like in the helmet. The helmet was just not flattering Wyatt Russell's face. I feel like when we see him with the helmet off in this, he cuts like a much more dashing figure. But something that, that I think is going to be... I have a lot of questions about this episode. And one of them has to do with continuity. The continuity felt a little weird and sloppy to me, which is um, feels below the standard of, of a Marvel movie. And one of the continuity things that I was watching was Wyatt Russell's beard, which kind of his like stubble, his scruff kind of comes and goes. And maybe that's intentional. I'm, I'm just, I'm on Wyatt Russell beard watch. 2021 is my point. Um, and I'm not talking about John mm-hmm. Walker's wife. And then um, <laughs> the, um, the other thing I was going to say uh, about the question. Oh, Fagan. Fagan is from, uh, that's a Game of Thrones thing. It's a Song of Ice and Fire thing. Fake Aegon. Fagan. Um, yeah. Do we, I mean, I, I solicit all, uh, you know, 
candidates for a fake Captain America, but I reject Captain America. Uh, <laughs> Keep it on fucking Reddit or something. I don't know. We, we don't want fap talk here. Um. All right. So that's it for emails. Unless you have anything else you want to say about that. Um. Well, actually, I did have uh, a question that I think could lead us into a, a bigger discussion of the episode. Okay. Uh, well, let me really quickly do yeah. one quick shout out. We got an email from... Um, Tottenville High School in Staten Island, New York, um, oh. from um, Mark Montalbano and Stephanie Schwal, who teach uh, four periods of English for seniors. And they used our WandaVision podcast as part of their unit, um, you know, last month. And I don't know if they're doing it with Falcon Winter Soldier, but I just want to say hello to those students and those teachers that they're listening. And I just think it's so cool <laughs> yeah. and a little daunting that little we might be used in the school so thinking back to some stuff i might have said on the one of <laughs> podcast that i wouldn't have willingly said to teens um but yeah that's really cool thank you uh, all yeah. for listening and treating it uh <laughs> the importance it does not deserve so go so go pirates all right so yeah. what's your what's your what's your question Richard? all right so molly writes to us and says um this weekend i was watching captain america the first avenger with my family mm-hmm. and in the fight scene on the plane between red skull and cap red skull says you could have the power of the gods yet you wear a flag on your chest and think you fight a battle of nations i have seen the future captain and there are no flags do you mm-hmm. think this this is connected to the flag smashers at all maybe they're tied to hydra's bigger ideals I think that's a great question uh, because we're getting a we're now sort of localizing in this episode the flag smashers personally like we've met actual people with names and seen someone like die for the cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we're going to have to get to know more of what they stand for because you know I have to say I did see some criticism of the first episode online uh, along you know a similar sort of like this is militaristic propaganda you know kind of questioning whether the the stated mission of the flag smashers of like, you know, a global nation, you know, no borders kind of thing. Like how bad is that actually? Um, so I think that to me, to my mind from this episode, it seems we could be arriving at a situation like in black Panther where the villain is kind of right about a lot. Yeah. Um, and then the Marvel just kind of makes the judgment that, but yes, they might be right about such and such issue. Um, I think that, um, Killmonger is right about a lot more than so far the flag smashers seem to be, but, um, uh, but they just make the judgment like, yes, but they're not doing it right, you know, and that's why we have to kind of smack it down. Um, that's, so I don't that's, know. Yeah, that's sort of something that um, Malcolm Spellman, the head writer, said uh, on the podcast last week. Um, don't worry, Richard, I don't expect you to listen to the interview segment at all. You have a lot of things to do. But like they that he uh, he said they printed out Killmonger's speech and like put it up in their writer's room as inspiration for like that the whole idea of Killmonger was right felt like the ethos that they wanted for this show, which is like all of their antagonists, whether you count John Walker, the new Captain America among them, um, will not be mustache twirling villains. They will all have a point of view that will feel valid from some angles. And then once again, as you say, it's the methods that we need to question more than the ideology. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I'm my memory is so spotty these days. Have we really seen the Flag Smashers like kill a lot of people? No, they've just been they've like just stolen things. They've been beating people up. 
yeah, <laughs> but, which, you know, yeah. not, not good, ideally, but like... <laughs> Our heroes do that all the time. Yeah, so, exactly. You know? Like, sometimes you have to. Um, uh, you know, I don't know. I just, the whole thing with them trying to get vaccines to people, that obviously felt very pertinent to right now. Yeah. Um, this idea you know, that some people are calling them Robin Hood, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah and, I think and I, like yeah. anti, you know, police. Uh, you know, I think with all the stuff happening in Echo Park in Los Angeles right now, like you know, this all sort of does have that timber of the Killmonger ethos, where you're like, yeah, but they're 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 saying stuff that you know should be more universally believed to be true. Well, I think similarly with with this new Captain America, and, and that segues into something that I want to talk about. But like, I think some people expected when he showed up at the end of last week's episode that like we would meet him and he would just be the worst. Like, I think they're primed for, um, uh, you know, someone like Homelander from The Boys. You know what I mean? To like get something like that. Um, if you watch that show, that's a that's a character that is clear perversion on the Captain America ideology. He is the like the v- disgusting villain of that show with his like blonde hair and chiseled jaw and good looks. And it's, it's a really fun, like I love what the boys does with that, but like, that's not what this show is doing so far, at least with this John Walker character. Um, we meet him in a really sympathetic place in this like opening locker room scene, right? Where he's just like wants to, do right by this honor that he's been given. And I think that's such a more interesting story than if he were a a complete monstrous jerk. He might still be revealed to be, but I actually don't think so based on sort of this idea of like, we're not doing out and out villains this season. We're doing, okay, I, I, I see what you were going for. Uh, You didn't do it the way that I wish you had done it, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah, I, I, yeah, go ahead. And I, I think that the way in this episode they set up his kind of cocky mediocrity, you know, a, as opposed to Sam's less cocky competence. And yeah. and there's certainly a, a statement on race in there where, like, Absolutely. you know, this white guy has to work half as hard and have a quarter of the ability and gets the big thing, you know, and, and is sort of more is like readily accepted as that hero, whereas Sam is not, you know, and he's being denied bank loans. Um, yeah, that that seems a stringent commentary. I think the question is whether uh, the, the new Captain America's role in that is just like passively complicit or actively, you know, uh, either way, yeah. it's not good. But um, I think I think they very pointedly so we meet John Walker, you know, for real in this episode. Um, We meet uh, his his wife, Olivia, um, and his best friend, Lamar Hoskins, who, you know, adopts the Namaker um, Battlestar. And um, I think it's, you know, very pointed that both his wife and his best friends are not white people. I think that's, you know. I'm not saying you can't be racist and have like black friends, but I'm saying I think they, you know, do that intentionally. So we're not immediately in a position of like, ah, white supremacist John Walker. Do you know what I mean? Like they're trying to complicate it a bit. Um, so I let's let's zoom out a little bit from that, but I want to, but we're going to come back to John Walker, and I just want to ask you, Richard, like, what do you think? <laughs> Small question. What do you think makes a good Captain America? Like, what makes a man Captain America? Hmm. 
you know, like six two can cook. <laughs> um, no, um, I, I, I think it, I think the, the problem with a character like that, it's kind of similar to Superman is like, is they, is that ideally they have to be so noble and, and, and is that interesting storytelling, you know? Um, but, and, 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 and in, in the, in the, the text of Marvel, like the, the figure of Captain America has to be selfless and, um, caring and brave and all this stuff, but also com- comfortable working in the service at times of like imperialism and all that stuff. And, and so can there, can there be a good person who fills that role? You know, we were talking mm-hmm. last week about Sam, you know, understanding the call to duty, but also understanding it, it's corrupting influence. Um, and, you know, Steve Rogers was such an outlier because he didn't really belong in the time that he ended up being in, you know, for most of his run as Captain America. Sure. He was also Captain America in the forties, but, um, you know, I think maybe the, the question is not who is the right Captain America, but if there is one, mm. um, and, yeah. you know, because this is a hero that was selected and made, versus some of many of the other characters in this series who just sort of happened to have these things happen to them because it was an accident or they were born in space that way or whatever, you know? Um, and so I think it's questioning the, the idea um, and the move to Captain America movies have done this. And, and the series seems to be doing that um, to some extent of like, is a kind of super soldier constructed deliberately by a very rich, aggressive government, um, actually ever a good idea you know is there Mm -hmm. any Mm -hmm. any nobility to be extracted from it in the long run yeah so it's interesting because like john walker um as he says in this episode he doesn't have the fanciest gadgets he he uh he is not a he has not had any super soldier serum uh he has not had not even in college (laughs) not just as an experiment once um and and so uh I, I was rewatching the first Avenger, the the um, first Captain America movie, and there's just a lot of discussion in that film about like why the character of Erskine, played by Stanley Tucci, thinks Steve is the right man for the job versus there's this other bigger, brawnier, more obviously you know like blonde, square jawed man in his company that that's who. Um, <laughs> That's who Tommy Lee Jones wants to be Captain America, right? But Stanley Tucci's like, no, it's it's Steve, and um, he says, uh, Tommy Lee Jones says, you don't win wars with niceness, Doctor. You win wars with guts, and that's when he throws the grenade in that famous scene where Steve hops on the grenade, right? And I just thought it was interesting in this episode when John's giving his uh, Good Morning America interview, uh, he says, "I've got guts," you know what I mean? Which is the like. Tommy Lee Jones sort of definition of who Captain America should be. And like in that moment, Steve reveals himself to be the one who has guts in that moment. But I think if you asked Erskine who, like, what does Captain America need? It's more about heart than it is uh, guts, if that makes any sense. And like, uh, we're not talking about the super soldier serum as it pertains to John Walker, at least not yet. But there's this my one of my favorite scenes in all of the Marvel universe is before the the night before Tony uh, before Steve gets injected like a butterball turkey and plumped up into his Captain America shape. He has this conversation with Erskine where Erskine talks to him about 
like what the super soldier serum does, which is, is it just enhances what is already there. If you are strong, it'll make you stronger if you know, like whatever. And if you've got something bad in you as like, I'm sorry, bad is very judgmental, but uh, as Hugo Weaving's character Red Skull does, it will enhance that as well. And so Erskine's like, you have to be the best man in order to be able to come through this and come out the other side. And um, and he, when he's talking about Red Skull, he says, it's not, it's not that the serum wasn't ready, it's that the man wasn't ready. Like, the serum wasn't ready, but most importantly, the man, meaning Red Skull. And he's like, you, Steve, I think you're ready. And and Erskine's proven correct over several films in the MCU. But the question is, like, <clears throat> is John Walker, even though he's not getting the super soldier serum, is that man ready for this title and all the pressures that come with it? I think that's the question we're going to be zeroing in on, you know? And if he was selected by you know, some government cabal mm-hmm. or whatever, like, mm-hmm. is there any way that he could hustle, you know, like could be, could be like ultimately good, you know, like, because mm-hmm. there are clearly cynical aims at, at play. I mean, I don't think you ever see scenes in movies where the hero is being trotted out and kissing babies and signing things, and, you know, <laughs> and it's, and then that's supposed to be like, yeah, and this is good. Don't criticize, don't question this, you know, <laughs> clearly there's some, you know, text there. Yeah, we should say, I mean, like, that's what Captain America was originally, you know, created for in that first Avenger movie, right? There's that whole montage of Steve going around selling war bonds, at, like USO shows, essentially, right? And, um, and there's this, um, I want to bring this up, actually, there's a song in that film called Star Spangled Man, which is the name of this episode of television. Um, and and Lamar Hoskins, John's friend, you know, says Star Spangled Man and all that. And they they that song was written by um Alan Menken and um Oh, I had I had the lyricist written down somewhere. I'll I'll find it. But uh oh David Zappel, who who did uh City of Angels, which I think is a really underrated musical, by the way. Um, but uh, it's an Alan Menken David Zappel song that they sort of remixed for this opening with uh the band on in the high school football field. And uh, like that that that's one of the moments of the episode that I really loved. It plays over the opening Marvel uh screen and it's it's this Star Spangled Man song but like updated. And I think a lot of people who love Steve Rogers as Captain America felt sort of sick to their stomach to hear this song identified with him, identified with this new guy who they don't trust. Um but I just I thought that was a really fun and interesting moment in the episode, you know. Yeah, yeah. But, the, you know, the last thing I will say about, like, <clears throat> who deserves to be Captain America, if you think about Steve Rogers, who was, like, this, you know, 90-pound weakling um, young man uh, in the 40s, um, underestimated. Like, that's that's what you could say most about Steve, underestimated. And I think you can apply that to Sam. He's not uh, physically... Um, you know, uh, on the back foot here. He's very strong, very capable, stuff like that. But because of his position in modern America, he's underestimated. And in many ways, you know, in ways that John Walker could never have experienced. And does that then make him actually the ideal Erskine approved candidate for being Captain America, you know? Right. Right. Because how can someone be a true champion if they are working again, either 
passively complicit or actively uh in 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 that kind of white supremacy you know like i i don't i don't think that the show is setting like you said i don't know that they're setting up john john to be like a white supremacist figure the way that like home um uh the guy homelander in homelander, homelander is yeah. you know but may or, or maybe i don't know i think also you know to talk about this stuff um to go further into the episode like we meet this character isaiah yeah who was a contemporary of Bucky's in the fifties, like during the mm-hmm. Korean war and mm-hmm. had super serum, you know, so he basically mm-hmm. was given all of the things that the, these other heroes were. And yet, you know, much to, um, you know, Sam's consternation and frustration is like, wait, but how come we don't know about this guy? Mm-hmm. You know, and I think mm-hmm. that's definitely factoring into this sort of the, the racial dialogue that's happening in the show, which, you know, especially cause it's immediately followed by this very tense and, you know, symbolic scene uh with the police absolutely um and i think that that police scene on the heels of the bank loan scene um you know is is just more of the great work that this show is doing to bring that conversation into a superhero context of like a a a scenario that we have become like upsettingly familiar with in america and it's like something that malcolm spellman said is like if you think about sam in the context of like, you know, a football star, right? That there's just like no level, you could be president of the United States, Barack Obama, and there's no level of power that you can achieve that will shield you from uh, these kinds of, uh, you know, racial indignities. Um, And, you know, so there's this moment where, you know, the, the white cop is told, like, basically, that's that's an Avenger, that's Sam Wilson, you know, and, and that's like saying, like, that's a quarterback for, you know, uh, this team and like, oh, sorry, I didn't recognize you, sir, like sort of thing. And it's just sort of it's 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 chilling. But yeah, I would do I do want to talk about Isaiah Bradley. What did you what how did you feel about that scene? We've got Carl Lumley, uh, my my one of my favorite actors from Alias is here to play Isaiah Bradley, who in the comics is actually the first Captain America before Steve Rogers. Uh, but here he's been sort of shifted over to the Korean War. Um, how, what What did you, what were your reactions to the scene? Well, I, I like any time in this kind of, you know, storytelling where you, you get a, a sort of sudden reveal of like deeper history that even characters in the show didn't know, mm-hmm. you know? Um, because of course there would be other people. They weren't just going to give it to like one guy in 1940, whatever, and then be like, well, and we're done, you know? Um, you know, uh, and clearly there was a, there's a tie to be like, okay, if there was super serum in the past that we didn't know about, obviously these new flag smasher people like have some access to it too. So there's Mm -hmm. a continuity there, but yeah, I think that it, it, you know, we've seen stuff like Watchmen, uh, of late that have taken the, um, the framework and the, the the kind of storytelling traditions of superhero stories and not grafted them onto the context of like America's history, but actually inserted them where they probably would have been, you know, it, it's not an, it's not really, it's, it's a, what if sure. Cause it's all made up, but it, it feels like it's, it's less about trying to apply uh, history to superhero stories, but, instead applying superhero history st- stories to history and and um you think about the tuskegee experiment and um you know there's the, the a film called uh, i believe it's called the walking dead about black soldiers in vietnam who are totally you know um thrown to the wolves in the war after the war 
you know, it's, uh, I think dead presidents is a movie about that too. Um, you know, I think that it, teasing out that aspect of America's real history in a story like this, in a strange way, even though there are shields flying around and people jumping 30 feet in the air, it, mm-hmm. it lends it more credibility and thus makes it that much more resonant. Yeah. Um, uh, something we, Anthony and I talked about this a little bit at the tail end of last week's episode because Malcolm Spellman recommended the comic Red, White, and Black, uh, Truth, Red, White, and Black, which is the story of Isaiah Bradley. Um, and it's sort of this thing that's revealed that before they put the quote unquote perfected serum in Steve Rogers, they experimented on hundreds of black soldiers. Um, it's meant to be to invoke directly the Tuskegee experiments um, and to send several chills up and down your spine and, and, and make you feel disgusted in the comics. Isaiah Bradley is the first Captain America in this context. Like I said, this is a Korean war um, scenario. I think because actor Carl Lumley is 69 years old is not as old. I just want to say, as what we're presented with in that scene. And I always get suspicious. (laughs) Whenever that happens, I feel like we're going to get a flashback. Um, So I suspect we will get, I don't know if we'll be lucky enough to get a whole episode. I think it'd be really cool if they did that. Um, But get at least some of an episode dedicated to the full Isaiah Bradley story. Which would be, let's generously say, an echo of a a standalone episode in Watchmen. (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, but but one of the best episodes of television. So if you're gonna if you're gonna echo the best, you know, why not do it? Um but the um it it would be interesting to see like Bucky in that context. Um and then something you know, something that Anthony and I talked about last week, but but is fun to point out is that Eli uh Bradley, uh who is Isaiah's grandson who opened the door for um Sam and Bucky uh, that character is a superhero in his own right in the comics known as Patriot and uh, part of the Young Avengers team. We talked about the Young Avengers a little bit when we were talking about Wanda's twin boys in WandaVision. Um, and it just really feels like they're, they've are they got their foot on the gas trying to build up the Young Avengers across these various TV shows. So um, he's played by an actor named Elijah Richardson, who I haven't, who has not done much um, so far. And so this is like a real potential for like, you know, you might have just seen the introduction of of a new star of of Marvel content. He's he's a leader of the Young Avengers, so we'll see we'll see if that turns out for him. But and yeah. and having a character named Patriot, yeah, um, be a young black man at a time when that word Patriot. I mean, it's been co opted for a long time, but like especially recently has been seized by the white nationalist right. Um, you know, all all the way up to like Ivanka Trump during on the day of the Capitol siege, tweeting out like some patriots, you know, whatever. Like it's become a very loaded word. So I think a kind of almost reclamation of that word would be interesting uh, to see down the line. The um, the we've so we've we met Patriot. I I, I completely agree with you. Um, we should say that in the comics, John Walker also goes by the name U.S. Agent. Rather than Captain America, he also goes by Captain America at one point. So, like, if we have, if we wind up with Captain America, like, let's say Sam becomes Captain America. We don't know for certain, but let's say he does. He's Captain America. John Walker, if he sticks around, which he may not, 
U.S. agent, and then we have Patriot in the form of uh, Eli, which is just, it's an interesting little uh, triumvirate they're building there. And then we have Battlestar, who we meet, Lamar Hoskins, played by um, Clay Bennett. Uh, I thought he was, I really, I got really uh, interested in this Lamar figure. I thought, I thought Clay Bennett, like, was, made a really striking entrance into the series, and I, um, I don't know how much more we'll learn about him in this, but I, I would like to. Um, so, yeah. Um, all right. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's mostly what I want to talk about in terms of like the, Isaiah Bradley and John Walker and, and what makes Captain America, because those are like sort of the two questions hanging around those men. Uh, I guess I'll, I'll lastly say really quickly that like something that Marvel is struggling with as time goes on is these like wartime origin stories for these ver- various characters. Like it works to put Steve and Bucky on ice so they could still maintain their original comic book origin story, which is World War II. And World War II is such a perfect origin point for Steve Rogers because that's like one of our most uncomplicated wars that America was involved with because like Hitler is still like a figure that we can just uncomplicatedly say yep and they bomb Pearl Harbor yep this we're involved we're involved and there's a bad guy and and there's no question about the badness here right and every war after that gets more complicated and I think it's interesting that uh, John Walker's character in the comic books uh his origin is tied more closely to the Vietnam War uh a more a much more morally murky war that um i mean it, it, it was his brother who was a who was a soldier in in the Vietnam War and that's what inspired him to serve but like you know i i just think that that's interesting and the fact that it's the Korean War for Isaiah Bradley is interesting because that's a war that we like almost forget to talk about <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. right? We don't talk about the Korean War. And, uh, you know, so to make this forgotten Captain America figure part of this forgotten war, at least in terms of the way that American history is taught, um, I think is an interesting choice. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, the Korean War is so forgotten that people think MASH is about the Vietnam War. Uh, right. And right. veterans of the Korean War are in the quote unquote silent generation, you know. Um, so yeah, I think going into that, Kevin's dad on Wonder Years is a Korean war vet. Oh, that was my like first like (laughs) introduction to that war, I guess. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. You know, I think there also in terms of like the world war two aspect of, of Steve Rogers, like it, it, it is telling in some ways that the, all the sort of Hydra stuff and Red Skull and all that, it's, it's clearly Nazi stuff. Yeah. And they kind of don't at least for my memory, don't go into the Japanese theater of the war, but no. partly because that ends with like the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which, you know, are like war crimes essentially that the U S did in a, you know, so it's like, yeah. I, I think that, you know, again, I still, I do, do have reservations about watching a whole series or about the sort of military aspect of this whole thing, because I think it has been used a bit jingoistically let's say in marvel films past but if they're kind of bringing up all of these ghosts or 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 you know tossed aside people from the past to kind of have this broader reckoning with like what the 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 ethos and the the people even that created captain america were doing all along throughout this century um that could be a sort of interesting um unearthing of like a new meaning of the Avengers, which then, you know, in Marvel synergy would pave way for like young Avengers, you know, to kind of correct the wrong, the wrongs Mm. of the past. 
Yeah. I have questions about, um, you know, that I, you know, I will try to dig into about, um, you know, Captain Marvel was a film where um, the collaboration with the U.S. Air Force um, was something that people had a lot of questions about. And in this episode, we see the John Walker posters that are sort of around the hangar where um, uh, Sam and Bucky and, and Danny take off, uh, have like an official U.S. Army logo on them. So like you and that has to be cleared, right, in order to be used. So that implies some sort of collaboration. So I don't know. I, I will keep an eye on sort of what's going to happen here in terms of interrogating American military might. And yes, when I said World War II was our most un- morally uncomplicated war, uh, that, of course, does not include That's this the- horrific <laughs> thing we did. And uh, also, the most uncomplicated American war is still incredibly complicated. So, yes. Um, all right. Let's talk about a few other things that get mentioned uh, before uh, we go. Yeah, go Can ahead. I just I, I just want to say, you know, uh, my father was American historian. Um, and so I have a little perspective on this. But like the most uncomplicated American war thus far has been the war with grandpa. And that was very, <laughs> very complicated. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, at one point, uh, Bucky or Sam says the last time we stole this shield, uh do you remember how well do you remember the events of Captain America Civil War, Richard? I remember there was an airport thing. <laughs> right. Uh yes. At one point at one point, uh the government, as represented um as it always should be by William Hurt, uh, you know, takes possession of the Black Panther suit, the Falcon Wings, and the Shield. And uh Sharon Carter, as played by Emily Van Camp, sort of helps the heroes steal their stuff back a little bit, like passively, kind of, and uh, and gets in a lot of trouble for it. So uh, we learn that she was, you know, an enemy of the state because of her involvement in that. And, um, or not passively, actually, I think she has it in the trunk of her car. So actively, actively, Sharon Carter boosted the shield uh, for them. So uh, we know that Sharon Carter's in this show. We haven't seen her yet, but that's just like, you know, they, they dropped her name as a mention here to get us ready for, you know, maybe we'll meet her next week, something like that. So Sharon Carter, she's done stuff for heroes in the past. Will she do stuff with the heroes in the future? Uh, time will tell. Or will she want revenge? Because Emily Van Camp was on revenge. She sure was. <laughs> I hope she shows up in a gown. Um, all right. And then Baron Zemo. Uh, what do you remember about Zemo, <laughs> Richard? That's Daniel Brühl's character? Yes. Correct. I do remember when I reviewed that movie that I liked that um, the villain was sort of not concerned with world domination, but actually looking at the heroes themselves. And, you know, like, like his, his, his beef was with them, you know, not with the world. It kind of felt like, um, am I remembering wrong? Yeah, no, you're right. So I kind of, I think that's an interesting, he's like, he felt like the first villain who was truly reactive to what we'd seen previous, you know? Yeah, so he basically in the end of uh, the film Avengers Age of Ultron, the Avengers, in order to try to stop Ultron, which is a monster, you know, that Tony Stark unleashed in the first place, like basically destroy uh, Sokovia. And that's why we get the whole like thing, the, the whole thing in Civil War is a thing called the Sokovia Accords, which is like there to put a check on the power of these superheroes. And Baron Zemo is a man who lost his entire family in the wreckage of that Sokovian disaster. And so his mission in Civil War is to 
uh, from behind the scenes manipulate the Avengers to that airport fight that you referenced. It, like, get them in a position where they're fighting each other because he sees them as he wants, you know, revenge. And, uh, it, you know, Emily Van Camp style um, for what happened to his family. And it, I love Zemo as an antagonist in that way. He's one of the smarter antagonists we get in the way that he manipulates these very smart people uh, into into like you know fighting themselves. Uh, so yeah, Baron Zemo, he's in Zell two one eight seven awaiting Sam and Bucky. Uh, I I wouldn't. I laughed out loud when there was just randomly an insert shot of a chessboard. I don't. I don't know what that choice was. I thought it was very silly. Um, but otherwise, I'm very excited for Zemo to show up. But I thought it was really like a little too Magneto. For them, for them to be like, here he is. He's in jail. Also, the chess game begins. Yes, <laughs> you know, it's like okay. Um, I, you know, I would like a supervillain in jail to play. I don't know, backgammon, something else. Uno. <laughs> um, anything else you want to say about this episode uh, before we wrap up? Um, R.I.P. Red Wing, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, snapped in half uh, mm-hmm. by. A lady uh, from the other group. Um, no, I think that's it. I think we covered a lot. I will be uh, curious to hear what you and Anthony have to say about it. I will listen, I promise, because I think it, with this show versus WandaVision, it actually helps to get more of that context that I don't have. Um, so yeah, until next week. All right, until next week. Um, I will... Where Where will you be, Richard, until next week? Uh... Well, I mean, I got to, for some reason they asked me to fix this Red Wing thing. So I, I got to like get like, comp, you know, comp, robot fixing for dummies or something. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm like on, I'm on deadline for a magazine piece and I don't have time, but what can you do? Duty calls. <laughs> um, I also will be on, at Ryla's on Twitter and re- reviewing and other things at VF.com. All right. I will definitely not be sacrificing myself so my gang can get away in, in a, in a moment that really buys them zero time whatsoever and just involves me throwing my body in front of guns. Um, I will also be on Vanity Fair and I will see uh, those of you who are sticking around for the back half with Anthony Breskin. Hi, I'm Michael Calori, the co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. And I'm Lauren Good, the other co-host of Wired's Gadget Lab. Get ready to dive deep into the cultural phenomenon that's been shaping conversations, sparking movements, and breaking barriers for over a decade. The new three-part docuseries, Black Twitter, A People's History, based on the groundbreaking Wired cover story by Jason Parham, explores everything from the fun, games, and inside jokes that characterize the early years of Black Twitter, to the social movements, the voices, and the hashtags that made Black Twitter an influential force in nearly every aspect of American political culture. Join us as we unravel the threads of this digital community, tracing its origins, celebrating its triumphs, and exploring its impact on society at large. Watch the series from Onyx Collective in association with Wired Studios, premiering on Hulu on May 9th. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You can earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
All right, we are in the back half. We are in the the real nerd stuff now, Anthony Bresnikin. <laughs> so my question for you is, do you want to start with something really nerdy, or do you want to start with me asking you the big question that I also asked Richard? Well, let's start with the big question. All right. Anthony Bresnikin, what yes. in your mind makes a good Captain America? Oh, good question. That's the key question. You're right. This is a big one. It's a heavy lift. I'm stalling. Okay, <laughs> do you want it? <laughs> do you want to I talk think... about No, no. I'm just kidding. No, I think it is uh it's it's the soul, right? It's the heart of the character. It doesn't matter so much. Well, he's got to be strong too. You know, he's got to be able to take a, a punch or a blast or fall out of a plan, whatever he needs to do uh, to be interesting. But uh, what makes him not just a muscle man, some sort of like tough guy villain? We've seen plenty of those or plenty of tough guys out there mm-hmm. in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, um, crossbones, for instance. Mm. Uh, but what makes a Romlo reference yeah. this early in the morning. Very Delightful. Early, right? <laughs> but it's like what makes Steve Rogers into Captain America and what makes him inspiring is is that uh, is that spirit, right? That he's a mm-hmm. little guy inside and he knows what it's like to not be strong. I think mm-hmm. that's the key to Captain America, to knowing what it's like to not be strong. That's so, something. So I talked to Richard. Survey I, says <laughs> no. I, th- I think that's. I think that's a really good answer. I I, I talked to Richard a, a lot about. You know, I was rewatching the first Captain America movie, which was your recommendation. I will give you all the cookies for that. Um, but I was rewatching it this last week and really zeroing in on what uh, Stanley Tucci's character Erskine says about like w- why he chose Steve. Why Steve? Yes. You know, because the question we're asking is like, why John Walker? Why Sam Wilson? Why Isaiah Bradley? Why Bucky Barnes? Like, why all these candidates? Who would make the best uh, by the by the Erskine method? I suppose. And um, what does he say? Maybe maybe if he should try the little guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a beautiful Stanley Tucci uh, impression. Love it. Um, no, but he says. Um, you know, it's that 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 thing about not knowing what it's like to not feel strong. Yeah, um, is something that Erskine says basically. Like, you know, a man who's been strong his whole life, like he will never under, you know, he won't be able to handle the strength. But a man who doesn't, who hasn't known strength, mm-hmm. and I actually don't know that that's always the case. Honestly, I find that sometimes people who have been like bullied their own lives become the biggest bullies true. once they gain some power. But let's just say we live in Erskine's world, and he's right about this. Um, oh, okay. Then I'm gonna, you know what? Can I mend my answer? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. You're right. You're absolutely right about that. Is that some of the meanest people are uh, are those who've suffered, you know, and mm. uh, and they're about they're going to dole that out to other people. I mean, this is a subject that's really, you know, dear to me. It's something I've seen. I've been interested in how human beings work, like why some abused kids grow up to be even worse abusers than their parents. Mm. Uh, you know, why some kids who were bullied grow up to be really horrible bullies. And I think the answer to your question is, what do we need in Captain America? Empathy. No matter what his size, whether he's the little guy, see little guy or the big guy, (laughs) I think Captain America has to have empathy. 
Chai's a guy. Um, <laughs> wow, I love that. Um, yeah, and so something that I was sort of workshopping with Richard, and I want to run by you, is this idea that, like, Sam Wilson's obviously not a little guy, right? He's a big, strong man. Yeah. But but the way in which this show is really underscoring all of the ways in which the the deck is stacked against him as mm-hmm. a black man in America, does that put him in that position, give him that understanding of what it's like to not be defenseless, but not be as, um, you know, to have the odds against you, I suppose, uh, the same way Steve did. Yeah, I think in a way, for sure. Um, And you could say, well, a lot of people go through that experience, and that's true, but a lot of people also go through the experience of, of being... Uh, bullied or overlooked or mistreated you know i think it's similar yeah similar mindset of i know what it's like to uh to be prejudged and to uh, be um, mistreated and and considered unnecessary by society yeah and considered not the right man for the job like if you think about steve oh right yeah you know steve being the way that first avenger opens steve is like rejected again and again for a military service despite wanting to serve right and so like if if we have this storyline here where sam uh less directly but still has been rejected from this job of captain america um, I just think that that's an interesting parallel because like, I don't think of Sam Wilson and Steve Rogers as like, you know, strong personality matches. And I don't think either of them would say they were, you know, something like that. So I was just trying to find like, what is the, what is the core of Sam that makes him the man for the job? You know, yeah. obviously he's like strong and brave and a good hero and all that sort of stuff like that. But according to the Marvel universe, that's not the question we should be asking when we ask what makes a good Captain America. Yeah, and I'd sound, I'd sound a little note of caution. Like, we're not saying, I don't think you're saying, I'm certainly not saying that being, a, you know, black in America is akin to being a little nope. white guy, right? Like, that's not, not at all. Not yeah, at no, all. No, no, very no. different experiences. No. And uh, I think it's more about uh, people who have very different experiences can still end up with similar personality qualities, which is, uh, I think you, you learn what it's like to hurt and you do not want to hurt other people. And Conversely, there's that phrase, uh, hurt people, hurt people, right? And that's what you were talking about earlier, is that sometimes people who are mistreated sometimes. pass that on to others. I think yeah. it's, I just think among these two individual characters, a quality they share is empathy. Because what is Sam doing when um, when Steve Rogers meets him for the first time in The Winter Soldier? They're running, right? But also what's he doing in his professional life is he's helping Counseling. other soldiers who have yeah. PTSD. So he's like, even if he's not fighting, Sam is doing the work of a good guy that helps us understand why he was so ready for therapy in this episode he's like oh i know therapy yes i'm ready (laughs) i'm 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 conversant okay um that's exactly what i want to talk about and so then in in the in the case of john walker who we meet not as like a uh an awful villain of this episode right there there are moments of a lot of sympathy and empathy for John Walker in this episode. But as a man who has been given a title and feels a lot of pressure around it, and maybe he has the wrong idea of who Captain America should be, but his idea of who Captain America should be is not necessarily like a bad idea. Like I would give him a B. (laughs) 
but I wouldn't give him an F. What do you What do you think? Yes, a little lower than a B. I mean, okay. The, uh, I think it's interesting that the show starts off by putting us in um, in John Walker's shoes. Like it's mm-hmm. not. Uh, I think it, it gave us a moment to recoil from him at the end of the first episode, right? And then this one, you. Um, you begin, you know, it breaks it breaks the perspective and, and shifts over to John Walker from, you know, from Bucky and from Sam. And we see, you know, he's worried and he's trying and that he's not just some like, ha ha, now the bad guy gets to be Captain America. Like he's he's really trying to do what right. he thinks is right. I think the problem is he doesn't understand what's right necessarily. Correct. He hasn't he hasn't paid his dues in the empathy uh, he's the he's the wrong in, man in for the his job. empathy journey, you know. Right, and he has you know we meet his friend. I guess this is this is you mentioned like what are we gonna let's dive into the geeky stuff like uh, how many people watch this show and like a character appears who has a name tag and then instantly like Google that like and uh, you know we meet his friend and before we get an introduction mm-hmm. to his buddy um, uh, who who ha- only has the name tag Hoskins. Mm-hmm. Oh, Hoskins, I know that I've heard that before. That's mm-hmm. and then he, and then later, you know, he says his first name is Lamar, and by that point, I think all of the Google junkies out there have figured out that this is <laughs> Battlestar, mm-hmm. like, uh, another character from Marvel Comics, of course. But you know, interesting relationship. They're 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 soldiers. They're friends. They both believe in doing what's what's right. You can clearly see that, um, you know, that Lamar Hoskins. Is, is a black man, so he must be coming from a similar background where he's experienced something at least similar to what we were just talking about. And um, so, you know, they're coming at it from uh, a similar, or, or they're going, they're, they're, they have similar aspirations, but I, I think there's just something about the two of them that's a little different from Sam and, and, uh, uh, and Steve, right? What did you oh, think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And like, it's interesting because, um, well, fun fact about Battlestar um, mm-hmm. that I that I thought I'd share with you is that so originally um, Battlestar is associated with you with U.S. Agent who's John Walker in the comics, right? Um, he's like he, U.S. Agent shows up and has a, 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 like a, a rolls with a gang kind of uh, called the Bold Urban Commandos. And the they're Buckies. the Buckies, right? Uh, B-U-C, Buckies. I Boulder doubt that's coincidence, right? Uh, right, right. However, uh, and so they were going to name him Buck or Bucky, um, you know, uh, as as he became a Battlestar, or, or as he became a superhero. And apparently, uh, Mark Grunwald, who wrote, um, you know, a, the, the John Walker stuff, we mentioned him before mm-hmm. we were talking about comics to read. Uh, he got enough mail from uh, black fans writing in saying that the term that Buck term. or Bucky had like a negative racial association. It does like the, the idea of a Buck as a as a black man is is. And so they were like, yep, OK, and just changed it to Battlestar. They were like, throw that all the way out the window into the trash. Thank you for that. So uh, named a Battlestar instead. Um so I just thought that was a little bit of interesting uh, comic book lore. Yeah, but basically Battlestar and U.S. agent John Walker Lamar Hoskins uh, show up uh, with superpowers. And that is exactly what I want to talk to you about here. 
They get it from a character named the Power Broker. He gets the Power Broker gets name dropped in this episode as someone that maybe the Flag Smashers stole some mm-hmm. super soldier serum from. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have a theory. <laughs> All right, what's your? Are you your ready? Theory. Okay, theory time. So some people think that maybe the super soldier serum that um, the Flag Smashers sold and and juiced themselves up with. Uh, which is why they're able to to punch and so good and run so fast. Um, it was originally was meant for John and Lamar, and they stole what belonged to them. And so some people are like, "Oh, that text message! Like you took what was mine. I'm going to come after you." Is from John. I don't think that's the case. Um, mm-hmm. But what I do worry about, we meet John Walker, a kind of mostly okay man who has some bad ideas about who should be Captain America, and mostly, most of all, a man who feels a lot of pressure Uh to live up to this Captain America thing. And he mentions specifically that he doesn't have super strength like um, Steve did. So my worry is that John, feeling the pressure and not feeling like he's being a good enough Captain America, strong enough, mistakenly thinks that he needs super soldier serum, like that that's that's all he needs to like be as good as Steve Rogers was. Mm-hmm. And so maybe he will try to contact this power broker figure from the comic books and get juiced up with super soldier serum, both both uh John and Lamar. Mm-hmm. Um and that that will go very wrong because as Erskine says in the first Avenger, like the super soldier serum just enhances what is already there. And if there's a problem there, it will only enhance that. Exacerbate it. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You know, in in another element uh, from the comic book lore that uh, is worth mentioning is that, um, you know, the title, what's the title of this episode? The star spangled man. Mm -hmm. Right. Which of course is the song. From yes. the Captain America, uh, Captain America: The First Avenger, when he's like when he's on the USO tour, right? When right. he's uh, you war know, punching out Hitler and selling yeah. war bonds <laughs> and dancing with the chorus. Uh, yeah. And he, um, and and they even play some of that song in uh, the the marching band that introduces mm-hmm. John Walker before his big interview with uh, uh, in the middle of a stadium, which is <laughs> a little strange, but. Uh, um, you know, there's a lot, a lot of song and dance and show there, and the Buckies, uh, as they began in the comics, uh, this team of like uh, strong guys uh, led by Battlestar, were kind of a fake, right? They would mm-hmm. stage attacks on U.S. Agent to you know make him look heroic. Right. So they were like, you know, this was all a publicity stunt, and he wasn't really being attacked. And so this was sort of being drummed up to manipulate the public into supporting him and seeing him as their protector. You know, you know, uh, Battlestar, uh, Lamar Hoskins was kind of, you know, the Washington generals to John Walker's uh, um, the Harlem Globetrotters, you know, like you had the Harlem Globetrotters would show up and perform and you'd go to see them do their tricks, but they need opponents, right? So, uh, you know, they, those opponents never win. It's all kind of a put on. It's the all, yeah, it's yeah, all yeah, perform. Yeah. yeah, it's the heel. Mm-hmm. It's all performative. And um, I'm kind of wondering if we're going to see some element of that. Now, they clearly were working as a team in this episode, but mm. it seems like so much of their activity is a front, right? Like they're strong for sure, 
But how much of this is real? You know, that's a question I have. Mm, that's okay. Yeah, that's, I think that's a fair question to ask yourself. You know, and this whole notion of you can still be, you know, whatever, patriotic or, you know, trying to do good. And yet there's an aspect of fraud to what you're doing. I mean, Flags of Our Fathers was all about that, right? Is, you know, if this was uh, a photograph and, and, and film footage taken that was taken after the flag was already raised and we just wanted to get better footage of it. And yet mm. this is important mm -hmm. for inspiring folks back home and the war effort like well that's not a bad thing inspiration isn't a bad thing i think the question is just are you being manipulated and at what point does the potential to just be willing to manipulate people lead you uh, into doing the wrong thing anyway i think the biggest flag i mean there, there's a few flags that we can throw on mm -hmm. john walker here um you know like the the wingman comment that sort of sets that rightfully sort of sets Sam off. Uh, and then of course the like, stay out of my way comment. Always that, that one last line, right? The stay out of my way thing. Uh, that's going to make us feel, uh, you know, uh, more than uneasy. Um, but for me, the biggest red flag it comes in that early conversation between Lamar. And it's funny with John, these people always have like, their friends are always their friends they've known from childhood or whatever. So like John Walker's wife appears to have been his high school sweetheart mm -hmm. and his friend here says something like, this is why you flunked out of theater class. Like they went to school together at least before they were in the army together. So yeah. like these are all, you know, he's got the trappings, the Steve Rogers trappings of like, you know, you know, his, <laughs> his longtime girl and his, and his best friend is like that. Right. He doesn't get around much anymore. Like it's, but, it's a very small world. Right. Anyway. But, um, and, and, you know, we should say that um, John Walker in the comics has an older brother who was in the Vietnam War and who died in the Vietnam War. And he uh, he enlisted because he admired his brother. And so this idea of, like, admiration trying to live up to the example of someone, I think, like, you could sort of slot Steve into that position. But here's the big red flag that I want to mm -hmm. point out. When they're in the locker room before he goes out to his Good Morning America uh, high school football field interview. Mm -hmm. um, Lamar says, uh, you can't just punch your way out of problems anymore. Uh, Which yeah. to me is just indicative of there's some He's sort of violent past, um, you know, that, that doesn't really get underlined in this episode, sort of a throwaway line. But if that's something that's sort of lurking in the heart of John Walker, and if he if he did f get himself some super soldier serum, would that not be then maybe enhanced in a way that um, will 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 have disastrous consequences? So, yeah, purely speculation, but just you know some thoughts and feelings about all of that. That's a good catch. I mean, his overall level of disrespect, I think, was a red flag for me. You know that he. Yeah, you come in with good intentions, but here are the people who've been doing it for a while. And right. you're going to come in and be like, now I'm the boss. Uh, and, you know, I thought the way he, you know, it's great. He bailed Bucky out. <laughs> you know, oh, how about that cop scene? Jeez. We'll mm -hmm. get to that, I guess, once we get to the Bradleys. But, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that was intense and upsetting. But but he bails uh, Bucky out and, 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 and now that's nice. Thanks. But, like, now he's going to, you know, have this weird swagger. This toxic nonsense where, you know, 
you're going to fall in line. It just reminds me yeah. of like everybody's vice principal, you know? And, um, <laughs> you know, okay. So, uh, we don't have to do this if you don't want to, but it, it, I think we can get very personal about this on this particular show because the relationship there reminded me a little bit of you and me, Joanne. Oh, oh no. Okay. Right? Okay. Tell me. Tell me. I'm ready. All right. Who am so, I? Like, Which bully am I? I oh no. Okay. So now we're going super uber geeky internally on our own selves. Um, but like, you know, when I joined up with Vanity Fair uh, a, a year and a half ago, Joanna, what were people saying to you? Uh, who, who were, who were like, uh, oh, how do you feel about this guy joining oh, your team? People were really worried that I was being usurped by you because our, our interests are so similar. And they were like, oh no, has Vanity Fair hired Anthony Bresican in an attempt to throw, jo- toss Joanna out on her ear? Well, yeah, basically. I mean, that would never have happened, but like, I just think like, <laughs> Yeah, okay, you hire somebody else who has similar interests. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. do you feel like this person is going to move in on your turf, right? Mm-hmm. And I think clearly people can tell we like each other and we uh, <laughs> we get along really mm-hmm. well. And uh, we do this show two or three times a week when nobody's listening but us <laughs> on the phone. <laughs> and, uh, like, I think the reason for that is, like, just respect for each other. And, like, I came in knowing, like, I'm not here to chill. Here's a, hey... Hey, lady who covers Marvel, like, how would you like to see how it's done? Like, that's what I feel like John Walker is doing. Like, mm. um, he's coming in and he's like, hey, yeah, you were Steve Rogers' pal, but, like, now I'm in charge and I got my own pal. Like, you know, meet Battlestar. We're taking over this town. And I just think, you know, in any dynamic where you have two people who have similar interests and goals – you have to have some level of respect or else that's going to go bad. And obviously you and I have that for each other. And that also comes from, I think, having empathy, which goes back to the original point is that it's hard to have respect for someone if you don't have empathy for their situation or that they've been doing that same thing you're interested in for a long time and they deserve their space. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think John Walker could have gone a lot further if he had shown them the version of himself that we saw in the locker room. Yes. That vulnerability. Of, yeah. Just the, like, like bravado. I know I'm not Steve, mm-hmm. but like, I want to, uh, you know, I'm inspired by him and I'm, and I think part of his power is passing that desire to do good on to others. And mm-hmm. so I'm trying to pick that up. I think it's similar to like when people have like a divorce in their family or a death in the family and there's, you know, the mom or the dad has a new, a new significant other. And like when that person comes in and tries to be the new dad, like bad idea. <laughs> when that person comes in and is like, I'm never going to replace, you know, your mom. I don't even want to replace. I'm not trying I'm, to replace. I'm not your trying mom. to replace yeah. them. Yeah. And I think there's room and, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I think room for this I, relationship there that's separate yeah. from that. I just want to be your friend. Like, I think that goes a lot further. So I don't know. Maybe I'm going, I'm going too far afield with this, but I think there's something. No, I think you're right. But I think I, and not, but, and I think that John Walker's response is so human, which Mm -hmm. is like, if he, if he has some imposter syndrome going on, which how could he not, if he's Mm -hmm. taking on Steve Rogers job. Right. Um, I think I do agree with you that the emotionally mature response would be to be like, Hey man, 
can you help me out? I don't, I know, I know, you know, Steve better than I ever could. Like that's, that's the most grating moment. That's the most (laughs) grating moment for Bucky, right? Is like him being like, yeah, I think of him as a brother. You know what I mean? I never met him, but he's like a brother to me. And Bucky's like, he's my actual brother. God damn it. Um, so, um, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) I read the Hobbit in 1937 when it came out. (laughs) That's such a cute moment. That's been like teased in trailers. But one of one detail that I love about that is that Bucky wouldn't have read Lord of the Rings because that came out after he became an assassin. He so Hobbit. he only has he can only make Hobbit references. He can't make Lord of the Rings references unless he read Lord of the Rings in Wakanda, which he might have. Um, but he says I read it in 1937 when it first came out, so he must be referencing. No, no, right. he says The Hobbit. I'm just saying, like... Oh, he like, says The Hobbit. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. He's like, I read The Hobbit in 1937 when it first came out, but I just like that it's a Hobbit reference and not... He That's can't right. be Lord of the Rings. Okay. Um, can I bring <laughs> up... Um, I, I I think this is this is thematically related in my head. Can I bring up uh, this, this post that Ed Brubaker um, did this last week? Sure. Okay, we get some. One of our listeners emailed this over to me, but also Ed Brubaker, been, creator of Winter Soldier, right? Which, I, yeah, I was about to say, little, yeah. Little, so, yeah, so, uh, sorry, one I of our, could do this better than you, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> like, one of one of our listeners uh, emailed this over to me. This is part of Ed Brubaker, who's yes, a renowned uh, comic book writer. Um, uh, wrote this as part of his like newsletter, his own like Mailchimp newsletter that he sends out to people. But it's also been picked up since, so maybe folks have seen it. But yes, Ed Brubaker, creator of The Winter Soldier, but something that we, al- along with Steve Epting, but something that we should say to premise this is like ownership of characters in comic books is so tough and murky and this is sort of exactly what ed is going to be talking about here Mm -hmm. but i just wanted to like before i before i read what he wrote here just do you have any thoughts about like that complicated context of like identifying a creator of a character yeah it's tough you always want to mention the artist as well and then you know the colorist and uh i think it's sort of like it's kind of like a movie where you say you know um Greta Gerwig's Little Women, <laughs> you know, there are lots of people who work on it. You just kind of, are you talking about just how we reference it as journalists, like casually? Like No, they- I mean, as journalists, and, and that's a good point, and I almost I almost put this as like a tisking thing on Twitter, but I didn't because I didn't want to sound like too school marmish, but like, as people are more and more having to reference comics and are not familiar with write, about writing about them, it is good form to always do writer and artist because it, comics are a collaborative um, thing and it's not a writer alone in a room that's creating a character. Um, but more just like, I mean, there, there's a lot of history around this. You think about like Bell Finger, you think about like a bunch of different things. It's hard when you're working in a larger comic book corporation yeah. or other writers pick up your character and like the character becomes something else under that writer like ownership of a character i imagine must be kind of a heartbreaking thing um as a as a comic book writer does that make sense yeah okay so here's so here's ed uh, he writes, of course, today, the Falcon and the Winter Soldier show debuts on Disney Plus, which I sadly have very mixed feelings about. I'm really happy for Sebastian Stan, who I think is both a great guy and the perfect Bucky slash Winter Soldier. And I'm glad to see him getting more screen time finally. Also, Anthony Mackie is amazing as Falcon and everyone at Marvel Studios that I've ever met all the way up to Kevin Feige has been nothing but kind to me. But at the same time, 
For the most part, all Steve Epting and I have gotten for creating the Winter Soldier and his storyline is a thanks here or there, and over the years, that's become harder and harder to live with. I've even see high, seen higher ups on the publishing side try to take credit for my work a few times, which was pretty galling. So yeah, mixed feelings, and maybe it'll always be like that, but I sure hope not. Work for hire is what it is, and I'm honestly thrilled to have co-created something that's become such a big part of pop culture, or even pop subculture with all the Bucky Steve slash fiction. And that run on Cap was one of the happiest times of my career, certainly while doing superhero comics. Also, I have a great life as a writer, and much of it is because of Cap and Winter Soldier, bringing so many readers to my other work. But I also can't deny feeling a bit sick to my stomach sometimes when my inbox fills up with people wanting comments on the show. So... I'm sure I'll watch it. And you should too if you're a Marvel Movie Universe fan. But I'll probably be waiting a while to check it out myself. So please don't email me any spoilers, I guess. But go give Sebastian Stan lots of love whenever he's online. So that's Ed's sort of like complicated feelings around. And I thought that was like a really like mature balanced take. But I was just wondering your reaction. Yeah, I mean, actually, I hadn't read that. So you dropped some news on me there. And, uh, you know, I thought when he said he had mixed feelings that it was going to be about like, well... When you are a comic book creator, you're part of a continuum, and it's not even like a writer handing off a script to a director to make into a movie, and then they do their own version of it. I think one of the reasons sometimes writers get cited as the quote-unquote creator of a of a character is because it kind of starts with the writer, but it f- it's finished by the artist, <laughs> you know? Like, the character is completed by the artist, and a lot of times the storylines and the personality come from that art. So... Um, and my, and my understanding is that it's even more collaborative than that. It's not like step yeah. one, writer writes all the things. Step two, artist does all the things. It's like, yes, step, like, ad- well, it depends. It honestly depends relationship to relationship. Yes, it's always in the you case. Know? But I'm just saying generally it's kind of like, hey, I have an idea for a, a spider that's a man. And like, you right. know, and then, uh, you know, it, it, Steve Ditko takes it and, you know, comes up with an, a, a look. And, and then, and then yeah, it, it, it's a back and forth. It's a tennis right. match. But um, look, I feel I feel sympathy for that. I, uh, we are all working for companies that <laughs> make a profit off of what we do, and we get a, a piece of that at the time, and then that's that. I I think um, I think they should probably kick him some money, right? <laughs> like bonus as a thank you. Like here's a gift basket, and instead of being full of pears, it's full of cash. <laughs> like what? <laughs> I don't know. Oh, uh, the Harry and David cash basket. Yeah, everybody one. loves that. Mm, <laughs> fresh. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just it's it's I and I've heard similar sentiment from other comics creators. So it's just a it's an interesting thing because like I, I most of the Marvel comics um, folks that I've ever talked to, they do like the movies, but they have that weird feeling around it. Because it almost feels because for a while Marvel there was like a sort of Maginot line right between Marvel Comics and Marvel Studios, and that's um, more united now under Kevin Feige the restructuring of Marvel. But like, I think it must have been a weird experience for a while because especially because what Marvel Studios does is loose adaptations of a comic book story. So they'll take your story if you're a writer. And I'm not saying this is a bad thing that they've done, but I can understand why uh, a writer or an artist who created that story, they have no input, right? So let's say 
you know, you and I write a comic that we put our blood, sweat and tears into, uh, you know, that that is a story we're really proud of. And then 10 years from now, Marvel Studios decides um, they want to do some version of that. They don't have to talk to us about it at all, which is wild, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not how it works elsewhere in storytelling. So just just a, just some added info about the complications around adapting comments and, and uh, you know, how that makes people feel sometimes. I feel like there should be a mechanism there. Maybe there is now for artists and writers who work for comic books about, you know, hey, if you end up making a billion dollars off this character in the future, can you, you know, well, that's why, slice of it? Um, that's why a lot of comic book creators like leave the big houses to go do indie comics because then you own your character. Own, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think about like Kelly Sue DeConnick, who's one of my favorite comic book creators who, you know, did this great run of Captain Marvel, uh, Carol Danvers of, of iconic, probably the reason why Marvel studios wanted to do a film about that character. Um, but you know, then she goes and does like pretty deadly and bitch planet, like this other stuff that she, that is hers. And hearing her talk about those choices, I think it's, you know, it's really interesting to me to, you know, and, and I really understand why you would want to go off and create something that is that is yours, you know? Yeah, it's especially sad when over time, you you know, people get older and you hear about like a comics creator who, uh, you know, has a GoFundMe because they're sick. And, like they're, they have a character that's generating uh, lots and lots right. of cash for some company. And, right. And yeah. Yeah. You know. I don't know. I think I think there should be some sort of a ethical reevaluation at Marvel about this, and I, you know, I think that's fair, right? Like, yeah, just be fair, be generous with people, make them feel good about the work they did. So, so I go, guess legally, go buy... you don't have to, but like, uh... <laughs> go buy a creator-owned Ed Brubaker comic this week. If you like Winter Soldier, go support Ed Brubaker elsewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, maybe. What's funny is sometimes they would have, uh, they would pay people as actors, you know, in like some of the, like the seventies comedies and things like that. Like they would bring in funny friends, and they can't pay you as a writer, but I can pay, I can hire you to play like a bit part, and then you can help me write this, you know, on the fly on set. And, uh, and everybody feels compensated. Like Ed Brubaker had a cameo in the winter soldier as one of the people like Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. Hydra. I don't know that he got paid for that. I I don't know what, like what the compensation was there, but they could be like, Oh yeah, we're just really paying the hell out of this extra as (laughs) as thank you for, you know, appearing and blessing our work with this. And now, you know, he gets to go home with the, with the, the, uh, yeah, the nice Easter basket full of dough, <laughs> full of cash. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about another um, Marvel character created uh, by uh, some folks. This is uh, Robert Morales and Kyle Baker's Isaiah Bradley. Yeah. Uh, what did you think of the use of the Bradleys, um, Isaiah and his grandson? We talked about this a little bit. We talked about this last week, but we, you know, they actually showed up sooner than I thought they would. What did you think of their introduction here? We didn't get much of a look at the grandson or much from him. He just basically answers the door, then mm-hmm. hangs in the background. But, uh, mm-hmm. But Carl Lumley, man, what mm-hmm. a great actor. Dude, mm-hmm. I just love uh, his work so much on um, uh, on Alias and uh, – oh, correct me. He, he's, he did the voice of Martian Manhunter for a long time too, didn't he? And, uh, I think Justice so. League? I think yeah. so. Quick Google search for that. But I thought uh, – he also looks way younger than he looks 
in this episode. That's what I was telling Richard. I was like, we're going to get a flashback if they put him in that kind of old age makeup for this Yeah, because they really aged him up. But, yeah. like, what a what a performance in that living yeah. room. Like, yeah. holy shit. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, we're not, we know kids listen to stuff, but holy smokes, that is a great... <laughs> <laughs> holy smokes, Batman. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, holy great performance. He was wonderful. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah. so intense and so, like, you could feel that man's pain, which I think is really hard to pull off when you are <laughs> reading someone the riot act. Like, he is also so angry. And as you can see, when he hits that little box and it plows mm-hmm. into the wall. Mm-hmm. But I thought the the hurt really comes through. And I thought um, an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Oh, yeah. I'm thrilled. I'm so happy Carl Lumley's here. Um, as I said last week, I'm a huge fan of his work on Alias. He's also really good in them recent in Dr. Sleep, which I know both of you, you and I both yes. really liked. Um, and I know he's he's been on Supergirl, but I don't keep up with that show. So I didn't catch his run on Supergirl. But yes, he did voice Marsha Manhunter. Anyway, I'm glad he's here. I'm presuming we're going to get more from him. I would like a whole flashback episode to get the whole story on um isaiah um and, and i'm hoping we get that and so. you mentioned last week are we gonna see stanley tucci's dr erskine are we gonna see our uh Arnim Zola. Zola? yeah i i do not think after watching the original captain america again i don't think we're gonna get erskine i think we'll get zola because i think all this is gonna happen post-war well, yeah. So, so as soon as he said Korean War, I was like, "Oh, my Stanley Tucci dreams up in smoke!" Yeah. Right? Because Erskine dies, uh, you know, in the forties. So. The way Erskine talks in Captain America made me go, "Oh, he would never have experimented on." No, I didn't. I didn't yeah, think. Yeah. I didn't think that he would have. I thought he <laughs> might. I. Uh, I mean, but you never know. But like, I didn't think he would have. But um, that doesn't mean he can't be, like, sort of involved in scenes around something like that. Sure, sure, sure. But, I, didn't yeah. mean to, I didn't mean to impeach your perspective on the noble Dr. Erskine. <laughs> I just, think, I was just like, no, he's too good a guy. Like, he wouldn't, he wouldn't do this. But Zola. Oh, know? Zola. You know, Zola. and Zola, who goes to work for S.H.I.E.L.D. and is part of the whole, like, Hydra infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. and stuff like that. I mean, the question is, like, where does this super soldier serum uh, – I really do love saying that every single time, super soldier serum um, – where did this stuff that they put in Isaiah Bradley come from? Because Erskine, what Erskine had, uh, like that died with him, right? Because um, he was like the key. Or he had he had cracked the code. He had perfected it, it and it died but, with him. And then they tried. You know, they were they were putting this like uh, janky version into Bucky. Um, I talked before about how uh, in in the Marvel Studios universe, Bruce Banner is experimenting with super soldier serum and that's how we get the hulk um and uh you know and, and they're the other winter soldiers the the winter's children um people were all super soldiers but like and of course in civil war uh captain america civil war we see that howard stark had a had a trunk full of super soldier goop uh when when he uh was killed by bucky that bucky like snapped up and took back to Hydra, presumably. So, um, you know, there's been some goop w- 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 hanging around. But Super we don't... goop is also fun to say, Joanna. <laughs> <laughs> I just like saying goop. It's fun. Um, but I, uh, but, but where, what is the origin of the goop that they put in Isaiah Bradley in, in 1951 uh, or the 1950s? Um, I would like to, I would like to know. 
Yeah, I think, look, unlike flying and astral projection, uh, super soldiering is uh, an imprecise science. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) it's one of those things that, um, you know, I think the killing of Erskine to me felt like a bit of a narrative device. It's kind of like you've got to break the time machine because otherwise they could just keep going totally. back until they fix it. And you don't want you want you want Captain America to be unique and it's not like ah inject every nerd in America with this. <laughs> <laughs> every sensitive young fellow out there will become a new super soldier. Like uh so you want to break that and make it so that it, you know you get only one. Um so I think like it's the quest to you know it's a quest to to figure this out, to figure out why sometimes it works. And I think because it's not a science that, that is easily replicated, yeah, you get examples like Bucky, you get um, Isaiah Bradley. I'm really fascinated to see that story. But also, you know, watching Winter Soldier they uh, this past weekend, they mentioned Operation Paperclip. You know Operation Paperclip? Uh, remind reference. me. It's a real-life reference. Oh. to a program that the United States government had. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is this is a real thing. Basically to recruit high functioning uh you know, third Reich scientists and mm. engineers and individuals, you know, well these people are brilliant even though they worked right. in service of ultimate evil, we're gonna bring them over. You get people like Werner von Braun working on our rocket program. Right. You know and the ethics of that are extremely unsettling and mm-hmm. unclear to some, but maybe crystal clear to others. And Operation Paperclip was a real thing. Basically recruit Nazi scientists. And they mentioned it in, in, in the context of a Marvel film, it sounds like some made-up thing. Um, but, that, but with Zola, you know, uh, he's a bad guy. That's not a good guy. You know, he, he's pretty dark and evil and so <laughs> you know the fact that he would be willing to do human experiments and yeah. uh, create the pain that Isaiah Bradley experienced or was discussing here I think yeah that's not, that tracks Erskine doing it no because again he has empathy uh, he knows what it's like to see his community destroyed by this and he's not going to destroy someone else so you know I don't think he would have. I don't think he would have lured Steve Rogers to his lab and injected him if Steve hadn't been like, "I want to do this. Keep going. Keep going." <laughs> no, I, I mean, I know. I mean, I think there is definitely. It can be interesting to peel back the layer on a character like that who we think of as good and find out that they did some dicey stuff to get there. But I'm with you. Like, I would like to keep Erskine in the uh, the good bubble. The good place, and <laughs> and I'm happy to pin all of this on Zola, but we, we'll find out sort of what happened. But something that he mentions here, something that Isaiah Bradley mentions here, is that he went to jail. I think he said for 30 years. Um, in the comics, um, Isaiah Bradley also goes to jail for he's sentenced to life. Uh, he only goes for 17 years and then gets gets a pardon uh, and released and, and released essentially because he has dementia. Um, and uh, all this sort of stuff like that. The 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 last comic of Truth, Red, White, and Black is a really int- it's a it's it's basically Steve finding out about Isaiah, trying to put right what once went wrong, and like going to visit him. And it's sort of like a really beautiful conclusion. That whole book is uh, the whole run is is I think I you know I recommended it before. It's not uh, someone on. Twitter said this before me, so <laughs> I, will, I will just yes and them. It's not my favorite art, 
that has ever happened in the Marvel universe, but I think the story is really, really strong. And um, it has a very like 1920s Art Deco vibe to it. You know, yeah, the art kinda, looks very yeah. much like like something you'd see. You know, the sculptures on the side of a building or Atlas. You know, at Thirty Rock. Like, it, it, but it's yeah, I get you. So, um, but this idea that like the government experiments on black men, has them do some of their dirty work and then puts them in jail for, you know, as a thanks, um, is something that was explored in this comics and, and will be explored here. Um, Isaiah's very justified anger at what happened to him. And, and I imagine, as you say, Carl Lumley is not actually that old. So we will see, uh, hopefully him again. Um, all How right. about the cop I, scene then outside his house? All right, hit me, hit me with your cop scene feelings. Look, that's like ripped from mm-hmm. our present day, our yeah. everyday, and I think um, I, I that was it's a little simplified, right? It's a comic book show, um, but in some ways it is that simple, right? You hear people talk about how often they're stopped for no good reason, and that whole attitude of like drop your pride essentially where Bucky's like, just chill, just, you know, just tell the guy who you are. And Sam doesn't really want to, because why should he have to like, that's a, that's a real thing. And I thought that was really painful to watch. It hurt to watch. And and then the smug cop who, when he realizes he's got a celebrity acts differently, Mm -hmm. that was painful too. But I was glad to see that there wasn't, you know, copaganda happening on. uh, Yeah. The Winter Soldier, or Falcon and the Winter Soldier. It's just like, um, you know, I think a nod toward our reality. Now, in your reporting, didn't they do some reshoots over the summer or re- reconfiguring of the show? Do you think that's one of the things they did where they realized, oh, this storyline we have actually has some resonance mm-hmm. given the George Floyd um, murder and the uh, Black Lives Matter uh, Black Lives Matter protests? Maybe I've gotten a little bit more information since that, like, perhaps there wasn't, there was a, there was basically a huge overhaul of the scripts. Um, like, I think effectively they sort of went back to square one at one point. But I think a lot of that going back to square one was done before they started shooting. So my understanding is that they didn't, like, really massively reconfigure, um, like, shoot a bunch of stuff and then throw it out and then shoot again. I do have some continuity issues though. I have questions around like, I feel like Wyatt Russell's beard kind of comes and go a little bit in this. Um, and I have some questions about also there's a, I want to ask you about this other thing in one scene only in the plane coming back from Munich, Bucky who like has ripped the arm off his jacket, but now has a hoodie on with two arms on it. I don't, I don't know where he got that hoodie, but let's say he borrowed it is wearing dog tags and I have some real, and they're prominently displayed and they jingle as he walks. It's the only scene that he has them in. And I have some real questions about that. So, okay. So Sebastian, Bucky, you said Bucky's wearing, I them? said Bucky's wearing them. So like, so obviously Bucky Barnes was uh, James Buchanan, uh, was in, um, the army with mm-hmm. Steve, uh, had dog tags at one point, but like where of those dog tags be? Okay. So, and, and, extra textually Sebastian Stan posted like an Instagram story of those dog tags, like a long time ago to be like Falcon, the winter soldier sort of were back and they are Bucky's tags. They're not Steve's tags. Someone was like, what are their Steve's tags? And I'm like, I love it. So romantic. Not true. Um, so it's Bucky's tags. 
they have his sister's address in Indiana on them, right? Because I think that's 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 standard with the dog tag, right? Like you put the return address on the dog tag so that you can send it yeah. to the next of kin. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you send the dog tags if you like if you were in possession of the body, right? Not to not to be indelicate about it, right? But like you get the dog tags off the fallen soldier and send them to the loved well, one, right? Uh, uh, no. Well, all right kids <laughs> okay well, one of the things i don't know how it's evolved over time but i okay. know back in the earlier wars like i want to say world war Two, mm-hmm. there's an angle on the dog tag that would be kind of stuck into the body so there's a reason there too is that one would go literally on the remains uh and the other i think might be returned home but i know okay. at least there's a reason there are two of them Okay. That are identical, and one of them would remain Im- embedded in the body. Okay. Um, I just they, but my point is they didn't have Bucky's body, right? Like Bucky falls off the yeah. train, no, they didn't. and then Hydra has him. So, like, let's say he had the dog tags on him when he falls off the train, and Hydra has him. Then does Hydra have those dog tags, or do they have an extra set made and Steve had them, or do they have an extra set made and send it to his sister, like? And then why does he have them now? We've never seen him wear them before. And why only in this one scene? I just got, I'm stuck on the dog tags. I don't know why they're there uh, in that scene. This detail, so you you could see what was on them? You saw that it was his sister's address? I only saw that because Sebastian Stan posted them on his social media a while ago. So I could take a closer look at them. Well, Um, he would have still been wearing them when he fell off the train. Right, but he he was never like wearing, like, did he take them back from did Hydra have a, like a storage locker with his effects in them? Like here are your things, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like a manila envelope, like you get when you leave prison. Like yeah. I just, I, I, I would like the story because it just, they really stuck out to me in that. And they were only in what they weren't in. Like he wasn't wearing them when they were at least not overtly. Maybe they were tucked under the jacket, like on the mission. He's just wearing them on the plane ride back from the mission. And it's just, it was just really strange to me. So I hope, I hope it's explained in some way. And it's not just a casual thing that will now drive me insane for the rest of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But, um, but here's, here's the thing. If Steve Rogers had his dog, had Bucky's dog tag somehow all these years and gave them back to him Hmm. and we don't get to see that scene, I will lose it. Uh, so he, you know but he wouldn't have them because they would be he, the whole, whole, I, I agree with you I the whole point of them being made of metal is that if the body is not recovered right away they don't it's not paper that's going to deteriorate or something okay uh oh one other thing i want to mention a, f- a fast running thing have you watched the behind the scenes of like how they did the escape scene in captain america civil war where it's Bucky and Black Panther and uh, Captain America, like sort of running under freeways, um, in that in that big chase scene in that movie. Did uh, the behind the scenes of it? Just yeah. sort of the stunt wise, how they did it. I, uh, you'll have to refresh my memory. Okay. I remember seeing yeah footage of that. Of, you know them leaping across cars and going through the tunnel and, and all that. But yeah. basically, one of the things they did to make it look really like cool is they basically put like treadmills 
down on the concrete and sort of digitally erase them like oh. treadmill i think treadmill trailers being dragged by cars so like the the actors and the stunt the stunt performers really are running on treadmills that are being like pulled down the roadway that they're running down right wow. so that that's weird. why they look like they're running so fast because they are because they're on these they're not they're not like treadmills you find at the gym. It's like a special rigged up stunt thing, but like it's essentially a treadmill, right? Because mm-hmm. um, I was I was watching Bucky at one, at one point. Uh, Bucky does some fast running to catch up with the with the flag smasher trucks, and I'm like, why does this look kind of goofy? <laughs> when I think every every time I've seen Steve fast run, it's looked kind of cool, and I was like, oh, because I think this was digitally done. Yeah. Versus the like practical effect of of uh you know Chris Evans stunt double running on a treadmill that's being pulled along a freeway somewhere. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to flag that fast running effect looked a little janky. Yeah, to me, so. it starts to look a little fla- uh, a little bit of the flash. I was on the set of the original Captain America when he breaks out of the lab and mm-hmm. and chases um the Hydra spy. Oh, I'm blanking on the actor's name. Uh, fellow from the Hobbit. Oh yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, movies. Um, but he uh, Thor and you know, Shield. I know who you mean. Yeah, and he's running a little too fast, and he doesn't have his sea legs, so to speak, and he like crashes through the uh, window. Oh, of when the he's got the shop. when he's got the fake feet on. He's got the fake feet. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, yeah. My interview with Chris was when he was putting on the fake feet. <laughs> they were so <laughs> gross and weird. But he um he um they had a, an Olympic runner who was his double, you know, made up to look just like him. And for those scenes where he would be running like from the side or from behind, or maybe at that point they even had a little bit of facial touch up that they could do digitally. Um, But yeah, they they brought in somebody who could really run. They didn't Mm -hmm. have the treadmills, but like he could really run. And then they would like speed it up just a little bit, maybe touch it up a little bit, but they wanted somebody who could book. I mean, it works. Anyway. That seems really good. Yeah. I just, I, I think just... it looks a little more natural than the zip zip. Like, it looks, starts to look a little, like I said, like the flash. Yeah. It looked a little funky, I thought. Um, Richard Armitage, stop emailing us. We know it's Richard Armitage. Yes. Who's uh, Thorin Oakenshield and also the Hydra Spy and uh, <laughs> also in the great uh, BBC miniseries North and South. Okay. Just had to get a North and South shout out in there. Okay. So, last thing that I want to talk about, and then maybe if there's anything you want to talk about. Um, is I just want to really quickly mention, because we didn't do this last week, that Lieutenant Torres, who we meet here, Joaquin Torres, um, played by Danny Ramirez, um, is in the comic books, a fairly recent um, addition to the comic books. And he becomes, Fal- when Sam becomes Captain America uh, in the comics, Torres becomes Falcon. Uh, because, get ready, he's genetically infused with the DNA of Red Wing, who in the comics is a literal falcon versus a drone. Um, and it, and he becomes a human-falcon hybrid. Uh, so Torres became the new falcon. I'm not saying that that's going to happen for this Torres. I just wanted to flag that this is a comic book character that is that is known, a known quantity. So, As a bird lover, I would love to see more <laughs> animal sidekicks. <laughs> in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, less fewer robotic, fewer drones. <laughs> drones. I would love to see now that Red Wing has been smashed. I yeah. think let's get that Super Soldier serum into a a a, a, a consenting yes, uh, red tailed hawk or falcon and love uh, it. peregrine falcon, <laughs> and uh, you know let let that 
creature join the action and then share its magic <laughs> with him, with Joaquin. I think that'd be great. Consenting Peregrine Falcon, you heard it here first. Um, also, well, you know what I would yeah. take? You know, do animal, you know, uh, <laughs> animal e- experimentation, but like, you know, I don't know. Can you get the Peregrine Falcon's consent <laughs> to become a super soldier and fight for its country? I don't know. Maybe. Follow up question for you. <laughs> How does the shield maneuver work without super strength? Oh, well, that's what I was wondering is, is he lying about that? Because he, John Walker, we see him hurling the shield and like, all right, like, even if you were a champion discus thrower, like, that's, that's a heavy throw and you bounce it and catch it. Like, that's takes a little bit of strength just not to be like why doesn't he catch it and then fly across the field like <laughs> yeah i think i think I, uh, I don't know do you think he's lying that there's a little bit of like extra juice in him i would think that were it not for the fact that in some of the trailers we see sam doing the same thing he's like practicing with the shield so i and i had questions about that from the trailers so I'm like, how can Sam throw this thing? Like, I I feel like you would, it would hit you in the head or something, you know, at the very least. Like, you know, you need throw to have. In a boomerang's back, too. Like, it's not just a throw. It's yeah. Like, it's like, and, and you, you catch it every it and, time. And like, where it, where it pings right back to you. Like, that takes, okay. Right. Uh, you know, I know the shield is not the same as like Thor's hammer, and you and only like the most worthy pe- person can like wield it or whatever. But I still think that whole like boomerang thing that that Cap does that looks so cool, and like especially when he and Bucky do it back and forth together, which works because Bucky has super soldier serum uh, in Civil War. Like it's a really cool thing, but like rando John Walker shouldn't be able to do it, right? I don't, I don't mean to be a um, total shield gatekeeper here, but that just strikes me as very weird. Oh, wizard did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love the mention of the, what is it, the triumvirate? Aliens, androids, and wizards? Yeah, but I, I thought that was really funny, but then I thought it was weird when John, John Walker then it. says it later. And I like, think it's just oh, a term in the military. And it's that a shows military that, term, uh, the big three. That shows that uh, <laughs> that the Winter Soldier really isn't part of the in crowd. But I right? feel like they wouldn't say wizards. I feel like they would say magic users or something like that. You know what I mean? Well, like wizards felt like a real Sam Wilson thing to say. I yeah. don't know. Um, uh, yeah. Last thing I want to mention is the mm-hmm. scene outside of, uh, or before things before they get to Isaiah's house, um, where there's the kid on the street who's like, hey, it's Black Falcon. And he's like, it's just Falcon. <laughs> I thought that was a really sweet and funny uh, sequence and it really moved me because I've been to enough of these Q and A's where you know we talk about representation and how important it is. And when you see real kids who are seeing themselves on screen as these characters, it's really moving. I remember being at like a panel, moderating a panel for uh, it was um, the Agent Carter one shot that they mm-hmm. did. It con- yeah. they revealed it at Comic Con, and there was a kid in the audience, a young black boy, who said he stood up and his question. Uh, um, for Louis uh, D'Esposito, who had, I believe, directed that uh, short yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and is like the co-president of Marvel. Uh, he was like, my question is, when are you going to get the Black Panther? And at this point, <laughs> that movie had not been announced. And Lou, like, he's like, oh, you know, like, how do you disappoint this kid? And he called the kid down and whispered in his ear. 
And then everybody applauded. And he was like, don't tell anyone. <laughs> and I've always wondered, like, did he tell that kid the real thing? Like, what did he tell him? Did he say, like, just be patient? Or did he say, like, 2018? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but, I, but I just think of, uh, you know, my daughter's friends who've talked to me about various uh, characters. And um, whenever it's a character that they connect with personally, it's always really sweet. So I love that Black Falcon. I also yeah. liked the White Panther or White Wolf joke, right? Yes, that, that like, was funny. Sam calls him White Panther and he's like, White Wolf, which is funny because like, so White Wolf <laughs> is, uh, it was like an end of credit sequence. I forget from which movie before Bucky's reveal in Infinity War, whatever came right before Infinity War, basically. Um, Captain Marvel, maybe? Or, um, was it Captain Marvel? Yeah, anyway. Uh, where you you know you're in Wakanda and all these kids yeah. are like white wolf white wolf and then like Bucky walks out of his tent, um, uh, you know and you're like yeah Bucky's all he's been defrosted, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then it's just never really picked up again. So it was like a nice little moment where he's like oh, I'm a white wolf actually this is my Wakanda name, um, cool. but <laughs> but um. But yeah, to to your point, to that scene, the the Falcon scene, that to me felt like the most Anthony Mackie scene, right? Like I've been watching a lot of these. Basically, they greenlight they greenlit the show for a number of reasons, but one of which is, I think, off the back of the chemistry between Sebastian Stan and Anthony Mackie in all of their junket interviews, because they're always mm-hmm. paired together. So I've been watching a bunch of these interviews, and like, I think they they were really trying to transplant that energy. Uh, cause it's a very entertaining energy. Translate that energy into like the squabbling, into like the therapy scene and stuff like that. It's, it's a mixed result so far for me, but like, that's what they're going for. That natural chemistry that those two actors have. It just, you can't quite, it's not a quite one to one transplant because, mm-hmm. uh, Bucky, uh, isn't, uh, Sebastian Stan. Anyway, point being, mm-hmm. that felt like the most, the most, uh, Anthony Mackie pure moment for me, that moment. All right. So that's it. We did it. Episode two, Falcon and Winter Soldier. Um, we'll be back next week. Please do us email stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, Anthony Bresnikin. Until then, where can folks find you? Um, I usually make a little joke here about you can find me at theconsentingfalcon.com. <laughs> but like, uh, <laughs> um, can I give a shout out to uh, some friends in another podcast who I thought did a really amazing job? talking about this same show. So if you have enjoyed us talking about it, uh, you can find me listening to the Spectrum Lounge. It's uh, a podcast run by a great journalist named Rebecca Theodore Vachon. She's known as Film Fatale NYC on Twitter. And she uh, did a show last week, uh, again, called the Spectrum Lounge. Google it. You'll find it. It's a great podcast. She talked to with uh, another a fellow geek named Robert Young, who is... Uh, uh, not just steeped in all of the things that we love about the Marvel Universe, but he also was an Air Force veteran for, uh, I think he said, a couple of decades. So he brings uh, a really interesting perspective to this. Um, they, I think both of them explore uh, what it means to be black in America and their relationship to this show and what that show has, says about that experience. I found it to be really wonderful and enlightening, and so I just wanted to give a shout-out to them and... Uh, you know, on your left, give them a listen. <laughs> they're, perfect. They're perfect. really wonderful. I just enjoyed the heck out of that show. So uh, I thought I'd give them a shout on ours, if that's okay. Of course. Can you, mm-hmm. what's the name of the podcast one more time? 
The Spectrum Lounge. The Spectrum Lounge. Excellent. Uh, so we will be back next week. Uh, and until then, I don't know. Uh, Where can people frosty. find you, Joanna? <laughs> oh, uh, you know, as ever, com on Twitter, at Joe with this. And, uh, and we will see you next week. See you next week. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a, a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts.